0: Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic, sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. Today's interview features my longtime friend, Tom W., whom I met at one of his first AA meetings more than 27 years ago. What's interesting about Tom is that he had been dry for nine years when he joined AA, but his behavior during those years was every bit as alcoholic as if he had been drinking the whole time. Growing up in a very dysfunctional home, Tom's early life was fraught with daily fear, shame, and lack of direction. His years in the Army during the Vietnam War and his early business career were soaked in alcohol and abhorrent behavior. By the time he was married and had two young children, Tom's bitter and self-righteous temperament had recreated the same kind of toxic environment in which he'd grown up. As Tom's burgeoning alcoholism was fracturing his marriage and family, he somehow managed to stop drinking. However, his dry years provided little relief from the madness he found himself living on a miserable decline of mind, body, and spirit. The suggestion that he join AA, despite being dry, finally struck a responsive chord in his otherwise demoralized life, and he started to attend meetings. Tom's tenuous hold on the program in the beginning eventually became a tighter grip on all of the tenets necessary to live an AA-enriched life, including regular meetings, prayer meditation, and unceasing service work. Tom has always stated his sobriety date as the day he entered AA, rather than the date he stopped drinking. This important difference between simply being dry and staying sober in AA has been well demonstrated by Tom over the years. I've personally heard him share those differences with newcomers in countless meetings we've attended. His is an important message that needs re-emphasis, whenever alcoholics consider just getting dry in lieu of getting sober. The many gifts in Tom's life since sobriety are proof positive of the power of a spiritually centered and active program. As you listen to his story on today's AA Recovery Interviews podcast, I believe you'll be moved to truly appreciate what a life of sobriety looks like compared to a life of just staying dry. So please relax and enjoy the next hour of AA Recovery Interviews with my dear friend and AA brother, Tom W. Hi, I'm Tom, the alcoholic. Hi, Tom. Thanks for being on AA Recovery Interviews podcast. I'm so glad that you could do this today. It means a lot to me. You and I have been friends for a long, long time.
1: I'm honored, Howard, I, you know, yeah.
0: You were one of the guys when I showed up. Yeah, that goes back a long way. So you and I have been going to a lot of the same meetings for a lot, a lot of years. So we've had the opportunity to get e- to hear each other's share. We've also been involved in some other things, some men's groups. Yep. Now, when you came in, I remember you identified as being new to AA, but you had been sober like nine years or something like that. Well. Or not sober, let's say dry. Yeah, I was dry for almost 10 years. What was that like?
1: Well, what I... Say now is a lot of people come here. Alcohol broke them. Mm-hmm. The isms are what broke me, and I don't use any of that dry period in my years. I don't count that as sober. You know, a lot of people say, "Oh, you should or you can't." Yeah, yeah. It's just there's such a anybody that's gone through that. It's a miserable, miserable way to live. Yeah. And interesting, I had a guy <laughs> came on our Zoom meeting. 42 years of being dry I I I just I was speechless I I can't even comprehend how someone never been to AA I mean you could when you start to talk
0: a friend of mine calls that and I've started to use the term so so the getting drunk part before you got dry and then 10 years later went into AA what was it like in your family of origin, your family where you grew up that might have predicted that you would eventually become an alcoholic?
1: Well, it was a very
0: dysfunctional family. In what ways?
1: Well, I didn't realize it until much later on. But uh, my mother, if you can imagine, that in 1931, married an alcoholic. She was 19 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was abuse, abandonment. They had a child. And one day, I think it was an afternoon or something, she was having a group of friends in. They were partying a little bit. Mm-hmm. And she heard the baby fussing in the room. She said, oh, "I'll go in a few minutes." And well, when she went in, the baby was dead. Yeah, it so was Sid back in nineteen thirty-one, and uh, she got divorced, whatever. And, I mean, that broke them up completely. She went back to live at home. Mm-hmm. I knew her mother well. I can't even imagine the abuse that she took. My mother was abused physically by her mother mm. till she was fifteen. And one day, when she raised to hit her, she grabbed her arm, and said, "No." no more. And her mother never touched her again. My dad was, uh, his father was an alcoholic on his way home one night, fell into a ditch, caught pneumonia, died three days later. So my dad had uh, two brothers, Mm -hmm. his mother, on the north side of Pittsburgh. And um, she ended up cleaning toilets, cleaning lady, you know, commercially for the rest of her life. So that was the background. My, my mother and dad met probably 16, 15, 14 years some after the SID mm-hmm. my mother had. They traveled in the same group. He knew a little bit about it. He said, so tell me what happened. And she told him what happened. And he said, I don't want to ever hear another word about this. Mm. So it was the what my mother had going on inside of her. I, I can't even imagine. It
0: must be pretty tough.
1: Yeah. I mean, she was uh, the guilt. When my brother and I came along, I always like to say we were emasculated. She was so scared to death Mm -hmm. something was going to happen to one of us that she basically emasculated us. Uh, We lived in a small town, about 10,000 people. The prom was the big deal. My brother was scared. So anyway, he didn't have a date for the prom. One day, my mother marches down into school to talk to the principal and complain about the fact that her son doesn't have a date for the prom. Now, this is a town of 10,000 people. Word gets around. Yeah. So that was the epitome under which we grew up, just self-conscious, absolutely
0: consumed with fear. Mm. Was there a lot of physical abuse? Verbal.
1: It was all verbal. At the age of five or six years old, I would have nightmares, horrible stuff like that. Um, childhood was early, you know, five, 10, 12, um, scared of my shadow bullied some you know but I was an athlete so I got into that stuff that kind of helped but and that was my persona for sports. my life well sports yeah um, but also I may be dying inside you were never gonna know it and I, I had to always look good
0: we just didn't talk you didn't have a father in the picture did you at that point oh yeah he was in Yeah, he was in the picture
1: oh yeah and that was the thing that really and I never, got, I never got closure with my dad because at some point in time, I wanted to ask him, why didn't you protect us? Whether I was a younger one, I don't know. But uh, what I was able to do at the age of 19, I went away to college, 500 uh-huh. miles away. I played golf. I thought I went to Wake Forest. I thought maybe I could get down there. but <laughs> <laughs> They played a different game than I did. My first year back, see, my mother control. I mean, if I started to date some once I started to date, because she was, unbeknownst to me, she was so scared. It was a pattern. Once she thought I was getting serious with somebody, well, let's go out and have dinner. I want to meet her. So we'd do that. She'd come home. She's, no, I think you're doing, I think you're getting too serious her. you need to break up with her. And I did hmm. three or four times in high school. Well, I came back after that freshman year in college. I had been on my own nobody telling me what to do and uh she started and we had a what i call Donnybrook. i mean just screaming and yelling arguing i mean it just it was it went on for a couple of matter of fact she had to call my dad from a meeting to come home it, i mean it really got ugly i was saying stuff that i had been pending me for 19 years and our relationship was never the same as I got more into the recovery end of it, after I got into AA, well, actually it started before AA, uh-huh. but with but AA, I ended up being able to have closure with my mother, uh, which was wonderful the last four months of her life. And she went very peacefully in her sleep. It was estranged from the very beginning to the very end.
0: At what age do you remember first drinking on your own volition?
1: I took my first drink probably at about 15 maybe 16 but I was you know uh, played basketball so I you know you can't drink and be an athlete so I and so it was 17 when I quit the basketball team that
0: was the first time I got drunk 17
1: yeah my mother was away her sister was ill her sister ended up taking her own life she was up in Syracuse Mm -hmm. with her and my dad was out of town so, two of my buddies and I, we got vodka and ginger ale, or whatever. And we drank it all. And that's where I, I ended up throwing up, and sleeping in it. Mm. And uh, terribly hungover and sick. And my mother came home, saw what had happened. I hadn't got <laughs> oh, cleaned no. up before she got home. So, she, yeah, anyway. So, I went to school Monday. But as I've said in meetings, I couldn't yeah. wait to do it again. I mean, I was horribly sick. I figured I had to, you know, just tweak it a little bit on how not to get that bad.
0: Do you remember feeling good while you were drunk before you got sick, though? Oh my God, I sure did. What was that feeling like for you after everything you'd gone through up to that point?
1: Well, it's, it's just—it's just like that freedom. I mean, my mind is there's there's no feelings. There's there's I was so self-conscious, mm. so I mean, I was just so shut down. Mm. I thought everybody was looking at me, everybody was judging Mm -hmm. me, and I wasn't measuring up. And, man, I'll tell you, during that time of when I was drunk,
0: it was nirvana. So nirvana from your first drink until you got sick. Did you black out? No. I mean, I, I listen to guys.
1: Like, I almost say, boy, I wish I could do that. Because my problem was I woke up the next day, and all of a sudden the scenes started coming across of what, I, and I'm thinking, oh God, did I do that? Oh.
0: So you didn't have to rely on other people telling you what you did; you remembered. No,
1: that was, and it was just all that shame. You know, I, I, I was I was raised in shame, and it's just reinforced it. Like
0: that's a big burden to bear, isn't it?
1: When you're someone that that doesn't feel like they fit in anyway, you have to be perfect in order to to be included in the group. Yeah. And then just to look and see how I would act. Because once, once I got drunk, I mean, I was obnoxious. Just absolutely obnoxious. Because I was just, you know, the real me came, you know, it's that Mr. Peepers versus, you know, Superman.
0: So the way you would have liked to have acted but couldn't at home, alcohol released?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it just it freed me up to be, you know, to just live all those dreams and who I wanted to be and all that kind of stuff. And
0: so you're drinking from the first drink. You couldn't wait to do it again. So how soon after that did you do it again? And was that a pattern that just kept repeating?
1: Oh, yeah. When my son got into the problems, I used to hate these people. That would say, oh, yeah, come on over here. You know, you, you know, they would invite the kids in and they could drink. Well, I had one of those buddies and we we went out to his house almost every weekend and just got fallen down Totally wiped out. I did that my whole the rest of my senior year, at least two weekends a month, at least if not more. And I, you know, there was a couple. There were a couple really good friends, guys that I'm still friends with today, that we would go out there and uh, and we would just get absolutely wasted. Then we would drive home. So driving drunk. Oh yeah. And I remember one poor, one episode. This poor guy was was stupid enough to ask us if he could drive home. Drive home with us. And then once he saw how drunk this other guy was that was driving, he said, do you want me to drive? Well, we just, you know, I looked at him. I said, if he doesn't drive, I'm driving next. <laughs> I mean, it was just stupid, stupid stuff.
0: Did you ever get pulled over or Any any consequences from that?
1: My senior year in college, we were coming out of a party and <clears throat> just my date night. If you can imagine this, I mean, it was God was looking out for me because it was just my date night. Usually at college fraternity parties, you got Four, six, you know, you have probably at least three couples in car. Fortunately, nobody else was there, just my Mm date and I. I pulled out, and one of those things that's, you know, there's down there and then there's a turn, and here's a long stretch. Well, I looked the wrong way first. I looked the other way and just pulled out and got T-bone. The guy, God, somebody, I saw lights and I just instinctively turned and he hit the car hit right behind my shoulder right at the it was a four door and just the next day a couple of days later a week later when i went to look the, the whole backseat frame was loose so if anybody had been in the back seat they would have been killed i woke up in the hospital i had a gash over my head mm-hmm. took 18 stitches to get that girlfriend you know the girl i was dating at that time wasn't she wasn't she wasn't hurt No. So I wake up. They just thrown a cloth over my face. I was, I was, I mean, I I don't, the first thing I remember from the accident was at the hospital. I was laying on a table and had a washcloth over my face. Somebody pulls a washcloth off it's two
0: cops. Oh, my gosh.
1: (laughs) And they said, "Uh, were you drinking tonight? I said, yeah. (laughs) So they uh, gave me a a ticket. And, of course, this was right when Miranda was coming out. So I said, uh, I went to see a lawyer. Uh Uh-huh. So they didn't give me my Miranda rights. And the lawyer said, son, just go to court. Just Forget about that. Just go to court. Well, in 1968, I got
0: a $10 fine and $15 court costs. <laughs> oh, jeez. $25 to get out of an almost fatal crash caused by your drinking.
1: Yeah, I think the, uh, uh, my car was totaled. I think, I, I don't know about the other guys, but I think he got, he was speeding. That was the thing I was trying to call. Hey, he was going too fast. It was a 35 mile an hour zone. And when you see what my car looked like, when I saw it, there's no way the guy was going 30. He had to be going 50, 55 miles an hour. The other incident that I had, I was at a Christmas party with a girl and their family. Mm -hmm. And I got so drunk. I mean, I I don't know how I stood up. But I stood up and I was driving home. This is Latrobe, Western Pennsylvania, in the winter. It was probably about 10 degrees, Mm -hmm. uh, 20 degrees. Well, I'm... I finally get in the car, I put my seatbelt on. After that first accident, I never—I always had seatbelt on. Well, on the way home, and if you know from the north, you think you've shut the door, but it's frozen. (laughs) And on the way home, I had this turn to the right. And the next thing I know, the door's wide open, and I'm hanging out (laughs) of the car. and I grabbed the steering wheel. I mean, well, I had the steering wheel. God had the steering wheel. I don't know yeah. how it happened, but I had, you know, and I'm hanging out the, looking at the s- pavement. Mm-hmm. I, I have no idea how I got back in the car. I got back in the car, and I thought that was funny as hell. I laughed about that for years.
0: Did you ever at that point attribute getting out of the first accident, getting out of the second accident without being hurt or anybody killed, did you attribute any of that to a higher power? No. When you were thinking about it, what were the thoughts around that?
1: You know, I, I didn't really think much of it. I thought, man, what a story to tell. <laughs> okay. that, that, you know, it was just God, was that cool? How many guys can do that? You know, it was more that type of. It, no, I didn't even think at all about it. And I was, you know, I was very active in my
0: church. But you didn't see any connection there.
1: No. no.
0: Now, so this was going on during college.
1: If Vietnam had not been going on, I'm not sure I would have even gone to school, college. Mm-hmm. I had, You know, you know, when I look back at you, look at kids in college that do well. They have some sort of an idea what they want to do. I was clueless. Got in a fraternity my sophomore year mm-hmm. and just, I got out with a 2.0000001. I was going to be a teacher and a coach. And then all of a sudden I realized I'm not going to make much money doing that. So I said, well, I'll take economics.
0: You just barely get out of college. What were the next several years like in Tom's life?
1: Well, I was 1A when I graduated from college. So,
0: so you're 1A when you get out. And that's what you said, 1968?
1: 69. I graduated in uh, May of 69. In June, I got my induction notice, took my physical, and was inducted in October. My brother, he was in Vietnam, told me, hey, don't join. He said, just get drafted. I said, okay. So I went in and got drafted. Hmm. But what I didn't realize, all of a sudden they took all of us in this other room and they said, count off by fours. So we counted off by fours. He says, all fours step forward, you're now Marines. Oh my gosh. If they didn't get their quota, they took it out of the Army draft. Good friend of my high school right next to me was a four. He got drafted as a Marine and I was, a, I was in the Army. Went down to Fort Jackson. The thing that saved me from Vietnam was a combat medic. Ended up as a combat medic and was supposed to go to Fort Sam, but I got recycled because I got um, I got sick, upper respiratory
2: infection. Mm-hmm. And
1: what I read later on was the army stopped giving antibiotics, and so I mean I my fever spiked 104. They were giving me ice baths to keep it, you know, so I had a pretty bad infection. Then when I get down to Fort Sam, the guys that been in my class were about ready to graduate, and they said. Fifty to seventy-five percent of them were going over to Vietnam. Mm. Three months later, uh, seven that went over out of our class, and five of them had volunteered. So that saved my life. It's amazing. It's probably well, it didn't save my life, but it saved me having to go over. I mean, I would have gone. So you were a medic. Where did you get assigned? I ended up in Japan. You can imagine two hundred guys out on a company street getting ready, and they they call it your name. And they tell you where you're going. I didn't get any sleep the week, uh, probably that last three days waiting. And this jerk officer who was doing the deal would call out your name and then wait. Oh, no. And then say, boom. And so I ended up, uh, when I heard them say Japan, it was like, wow.
0: Yeah, you must have breathed a big cyber leak.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Were men from that roll call there also having to go to Vietnam? Oh, yeah. So it just happens that you ended up in Japan. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So because you got drafted, was it a two year uh, tour of duty?
1: Actually, I ended up doing 23 months. I got one month early out. Uh-huh. And once Vietnam was closing down, I got out in 71. Um, I supposedly had another four years of of uh reserve duty never heard a thing
0: so another god deal and you know so god intercedes yet again in tom's life and you don't go to vietnam you survive the war you survived the national guard duty for four years what did that do to your level of belief and confidence in yourself
1: not much really
0: <laughs> did you think you were bulletproof or, or just had escaped uh
1: Well, oh yeah, from that standpoint. um,
0: Can I assume that during your years in the army in Japan and the years that followed that you were continuing to drink on a regular (laughs) basis? (laughs) What did that look like?
1: Japan has a lot of earthquakes. And I came home drunk one night and just passed out on the bed and an earthquake hit. If you can see one of these big foot lockers that the military had, it's pretty heavy. I finally woke up And my footlocker had been moved 10 feet. I'm the last one out of the building. That's, you know, yeah, I continued. uh, And back then you could get a bottle of uh, Johnny Walker Black or or, uh, Jim Beam or any of that stuff for something like a buck and a quarter. From the PX. From the PX, yeah. And then they had the bar over there. You know, they had a, a lounge where everybody went. And so, yeah, it was just game on.
0: It wasn't very conducive to responsible drinking, was it? I didn't want to be a responsible drinker.
1: I, you know, I as I said before, I never wanted to quit. Yeah, I never wanted to quit. Yeah. if yeah. I hadn't become dry, I'm not sure what would have happened.
0: Once you got out of the army, can you kind of walk us down the road uh, with regard to what you did afterwards and how drinking was woven into the years after you got out of the service?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, I got out in '71. But I ended up getting a job with a um, as a as a uh, Claims adjuster for Liberty Mutual.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Went to Buffalo, New York. Ended up in an apartment complex with a guy, and you know, two or three of us became fast friends and went happy hours and getting drunk, and you know, so yeah, it was just continuous. I, uh, you know, at that time, you you go to the bar, you try to pick up women, and all this kind of stuff, and I remember this one story. This one guy said, "Everybody be able to pick up somebody." except tom tom was always you know
0: was that your reputation
1: this one guy there was a group of us around we were on our way back from toronto we had going up to toronto spent the weekend and anyway you know they all ended up with girls except me except you and i was over on the side you know and the next guy next day going back there were three or three or four of us in the car and the guy mike golden I still if i ever to slap him. <laughs> He says, how come you never end up with a girl? It's just, you know, all that shame, all that. Sh- well, you know, as I like to say, if you walk around with a scowl on your face and you look like you're, you know, pissed off at the world, what girl in her right mind wants to go with you? You know, so that that's where it was It was really. And that was in college. That was, um, I just always had, you know, because what's going on inside of me.
0: You're wearing on your face. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so, that doesn't make you the most attractive guy in the world to most uh, to most women. Um, so where did you go from there? So you're you're up in uh, Buffalo,
1: up in Buffalo. My dad died.
0: Uh huh.
1: I had to drive back down there. And I mean, you see where God intervenes. I'm down in Pittsburgh and I'm not sure what why, but I was down there for Well, I guess I was meeting with the Liberty Mutual people in Pittsburgh. Well, anyway, I'm walking down the street, and who do I see but a friend of mine uh, that used to live across the street from me, and then he moved to Arizona. And he said, hey, what you doing, and all this kind of stuff, and told him. And he said, well, why don't you come work for this company? A salesman for Connecticut General, Mm -hmm. uh, their brokerage division, where they work through property and casualty agents. And uh, I ended up leaving them and, and going with this company. Which eventually led me down to Houston, and that was another God thing.
0: Was that a straight commission job?
1: Yeah, a typical alcoholic. I went on straight commission. My wife got pregnant, and she stopped working. All at the same time.
0: Wow, talk about pressure.
1: But I, you know, this is where I would have a great year, then I have a horrible year, great year, horrible year, great year. You know, so finally, I just said, you know, I've had enough. I, I, I can't do this. I've, you know. So anyway, I go to do an exit interview. They had a position in New York. They had a position in Houston. You couldn't pay me enough money to go to New York City in that area. That's not me. And I thought, well, Houston, okay.
0: So CG moves you down to Houston? Yeah,
1: 1981. And they bought my house, moved me lock, stock, and barrel down there.
0: Were you married by that point? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had... This is a girl
1: from Pittsburgh. She was as dysfunctional as I was. Good-looking woman so we go out Mm -hmm. three months later we're engaged nine months later we get married you know if i had married her i'd have married somebody else just like her
0: yeah we we marry the people that that were like that can help but they can help us heal we heal by trying to work out our problems through them
1: yeah that's who i was going to attract into my life i'm not going to attract a a normal person because i'm not normal we both married our mothers but she didn't see it that way.
0: So what was the marriage like from from the time after you guys got married until you got divorced?
1: It was it was ugly. From the start? From the engagement. I mean, I remember when I was moving from Latrobe to Pittsburgh, I was dating her then. They had moved all this stuff and had mm-hmm. a you know, and She's tired and I'm tired. Well, I want to go in and have sex before I take her back home. And she didn't want to. And I got all pissed, you know. So we had all this projection because it was our mothers was, you know, controlling. She and I could never get past the uh, need to control. We could never get to the compromise position.
0: So two people trying to control each other at the same time
1: two alpha, alpha female alpha male i mean we were just and so we undermined each other we went i mean it was my oldest boy when he was 19 20 uh-huh. came up to me one day and said are you two gonna stay together <laughs> once we get out of the house does that tell you all we wouldn't agree that the sun was
0: out so so how long were you married to her <laughs> 26 years 26 years
1: 26 years of, you know, and I finally I finally said, after getting into the 85, the, the dry drunk stuff, and I started to really get into stuff. Well, number one, when I got into that period, I said, hey, I'm fine now. I'm good. Yeah. I need to fix her. I, I dragged her to seven different marriage counselors trying to fix her. She didn't want to be fixed. Yeah. Um, she wanted to fix you. Yeah, but I stayed at a couple of them. and I, you know, and I remember when I was getting ready to leave the first time in 1993 and I was in group therapy and the, the guy said, "We'll do that, you know, we we'll, we'll, you can do that. and We'll support you." He said, "Or you can stay and it's a wonderful laboratory for learning about yourself." And I stayed. So that when I did leave, mm-hmm. I was done. I mean, I knew my first wife would have stayed with me till we died. Because I looked at my dad and my mother's relationship, they they bickered all the time. I I truly believe that my dad uh, finally—that's why he died. He had a just to get out of it. Yeah, he had a massive myocardial infarction on the way to the hospital. My mother was driving. When I look back on it, I truly believe he figured that was the only way he could escape.
0: So you're in this relationship with this woman that you married for 26 years. At what point did you actually stop using alcohol? Was that Eighty five. I was
1: uh, 74, 85, 11 years. So you
0: were married 11 years. So uh, at the time that you first stopped drinking. So you had 11 years during which you could theoretically drink the problems away. And yeah. Were you able to do that or did alcohol facilitate any relief?
1: I mean, she put up with some abuse for me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was not, I mean, I was an obnoxious drunk anyway. Uh-huh. And so once I got drunk, I could just take the anger out on her, the anger that was my mother transferred to her. And so, yeah, I was, and drinking and driving, she got scared a couple times, you know, which I don't blame her. Boy, I just lost. I remember one time driving back, I stopped the damn car and said, Get out. I said, You drive. Good. You drive, damn it. And you think, you know, well, she's scared to death. I mean, she's absolutely petrified. Which, poor thing. I mean, you know, I understand. When I look back on it, I was, a, a I mean, a complete jerk.
0: So she couldn't control you when you were sober, but it was even more difficult to control you when you were drunk?
1: Oh, yeah. We undermined each other with the kids. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, just, it was just terribly dysfunctional. That was another a uh, God intervention. I swore I would never raise my kids the way I was raised. Yeah. And then one day, my younger one was five, my older one was like nine, And Uh I put them in their timeout because they were, you know, pissing me off. And I heard them back there giggling. You know, they each had their door open. They were talking and laughing. And I just, and I went back and I grabbed, five years old, grabbed him and shook him, you know, and I pulled him out of, you know, and he could have hit his head. I was just, and I got scared. And I mean, I was really scared. And again, here's God. I'm driving down the road shortly. I don't know how, what time frame after that. And this voice, loud and clear, says, join the Catholic Church, which was a joke. Because Protestants, Catholics, 50s, 60s, you just, you know, of course, true alcoholic, I've married two Catholics. So anyway, for whatever reason, I followed the instructions. And I I went Uh into, you know, because that was a big beef with us. That was the whole issue between her mother when we were first engaged her mother's first words were not congratulations it was my child my grandchildren will be raised catholic uh-huh. which was like a red flag and my poor my poor wife put on 60 pounds with the birth of our first child mm. she was scared to death she had two assholes that she was dealing with right her mother and me
0: yeah and yeah. we
1: were just you know and there's no wonder i mean my oldest son the birth it was. She was preeclampsic. Emergency surgery. Get him out. His blood. Her blood pressure started really going. So through.
0: he really didn't want to come into the world, did not into what was going on then. What I know
1: now, those nine months he spent, probably no no different than the nine months I spent with my mother. With my mother, all the fears, and my now my wife is the same thing. She's got you know she's got all these fears about her mother and me and all that. We had most two of the most expensive pregnancies. My younger son was. Uh, she had placenta previa. She had bleeding episodes. The last one is in the middle of the night. I go over to my neighbor's and throw the older kid to him, and you know, and take, rush her to the hospital. I looked at him. And I said, "I'm not taking her home." That's it. So, I mean, you see the turmoil that that, yeah. that body, mind, and spirit. It's all related. That these kids. Mark was. You know, he had, he we spent three days because they and he was premature. Uh huh. He had to go into the ICU for a couple of days because his lungs weren't developed enough.
0: So all this is going on and you're, you've got the two boys, you got this relationship, this marriage that's just not going well. Eleven years in, you make the decision to stop drinking at that point. Was there a, a precipitating factor that made you say, I got to stop drinking? No. What was What was behind the decision to stop? I couldn't get drunk.
1: If I couldn't get drunk... I didn't like the taste of the stuff, and if I couldn't get drunk, I, I just I wasn't going to drink
0: it. This is unusual, uh, but I have heard of it before, and, and every time I've heard you share about it, it's always made me think. I wondered, you know, how many people stop drinking because they can't get drunk? And probably not a whole lot. You'd probably continue to drink until the point at which it kills you before you'd admit that you couldn't get drunk.
1: Yeah, which is what I don't understand.
0: I, I have no idea. Have you ever looked into that? I mean, have you ever researched why that is, why someone can get drunk, drinking, 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 and then all of a sudden you cannot get drunk? Is it because of the way the body processes the alcohol? or what, What's up with that? You know, I
1: never have looked at it. I stopped with it. Was To me, it was divine intervention.
0: We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo a first edition big book, wearing headphones. And we're back. So 11 years into the marriage, you stopped drinking, but you've still got another 15 years to go in the marriage. And this is what, 10 years before you come into AA?
1: August of 85 is when I watched that crisis in the family. And since that time until January of 95.
0: So throughout those years, you weren't drinking. 10 years, you're enduring life and you're raising kids and you're trying to make a living and doing what you can to live your life. But then you make the decision, I should go into AA even though I've been dry for 10 years. What made you decide to come into AA at the point when you did?
1: My oldest son at age 15 came up to me and said, I'm going to drink and you're not going to stop me. And he was right. I just didn't realize it.
0: What precipitated him doing that or saying that to you? Was there something going on that you just didn't know about? Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, um. He's very successful today in the counseling business. At the age of 13, he started sneaking out at night and driving our car all over Houston. Mm-hmm. And I find, and I found out about it finally. I don't know how. And, you know, so we had problems with him from the very beginning. It was just, you know, and he, all he was doing was this was the thing inf- that infuriated me with my wife, my first wife. And I, At that point, I knew mm-hmm. all he was doing was acting out our issues. He saw a dysfunctional relationship and hurt, had to hurt him to the core. I mean, just terrible what we did to our children
0: as far as the acrimony between us. So at 15, he comes to you and says, I'm going to start drinking. There's nothing you can do about it. He'd never seen you drink or had he when he was a little kid, I guess, right?
1: Uh, Let's see, 74. Well, 74. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He'd seen me.
0: Yeah. Well, by the time he said that, you hadn't drank in a long time. Yeah, I'm halfway. I'm almost AA. The group therapy episode
1: I told you about, Uh that's when he first started acting out. And the guy said, isn't that interesting? He said, "Uh, you ever think about that? (laughs) (laughs) Because that was the first time my son got caught drinking. So anyway, my son says that to me and I looked at him and I said, well, let me tell you something. When you get caught, I said, not if, I said, when you get caught. I said, you have one phone call to make. I said, don't waste it. I said, don't call me.
0: You told him not to call you? Yeah. Hmm. Was that your version of tough love at that time, or what were you, you know, that was
1: my version of being an asshole, an angry <laughs> asshole. Yeah,
0: yeah I, I would love to
1: say, oh, yes, yeah, see, I had <laughs> seen the light now, and I knew, you know, yes, and it would take, t- you know, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, no. No, I was just a jerk, absolute jerk. And see, I had to look good. So, I'm being a wonderful parent because I'm giving my kid tough love and I'm showing him, hey, yeah, yeah, you know, no. <laughs> I, I wish, you know, it looks good, but no. So, there was
0: his ultimatum that if, uh, to not waste the call when he's in trouble, not call you. Uh, what happened as a result of all that?
1: Rodeo. The cop calls me. So, I got your son here. And I said, take him to jail. He said, he told me you'd tell me that. I said, take him to jail. I said, the only way he's going to learn, um, three o'clock in the morning, he knocks on the door. He brings the kid home. And I'm pissed off. So what are you doing? You know, so anyway, this goes on. You see how God intervenes all the way along. 92, just as this is starting to heat up with him, a group of us, the parents that have kids that don't want to be, you know, don't want to see this going on. We're going to stamp out drinking in the west side of Houston. We're going to join a get a parents group together. And and I organized two meetings with, you know, civil authorities, police. Mm -hmm. God intervened and sent an angel in that group who herself was a counselor, but also a recovering alcoholic. She was at that first meeting. Mm -hmm. And so I was announcing all these things we were going to do. So a few days before the first big meeting with the police, well, my son gets caught in a football game doing things you don't do. And this time, take him down to Macau on the south side. Mm -hmm. And by this time, the counselor's involved with us, and we call her up. She said, well, check and make sure he'll be safe. And he said, yes. And she said, okay, go ahead. But then there was another episode before the next meeting. God has a wonderful sense of humor. He will take everything away. <laughs> everything. Yeah, that stands in the way. Second episode, you know, just before the meeting again, same thing. Everybody knows. In the same son. Yeah. And so anyway, they, um, it was after that second meeting and the police and everybody look at me and say, dude, you probably need to take, you know, there's nothing you can do because I'm trying to change the rules, how they, you know, because it's so difficult, you know, a minor in possession, all this stuff is really difficult to, to, you know, and the cops are frustrated, you know, whatever. They finally look at me and say, you know, take care of your kid.
0: So you're in a very hypocritical situation oh. there, aren't you?
1: Again, I'm going down fighting. It's not me. I'm one wonder- of trying to do. It's not my fault. That's the whole, you know. Yeah. And then finally the group, somebody else, they had pointed at somebody else say, Tom, we don't think you should be running this. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> that was the last. That was it. That was it. I was I was the shame of the just oh again, all these people look at me. I'm not measuring. Oh my God, you know. And it was about that time, too, that the the counselor, we'd been working with this counselor for two, three mm-hmm. years, she looked at me one day and said, Dude, you need to be an AA. Hmm. I said, What are you talking about? He's the one who drinks. I don't drink anymore. She said, You need to be an AA. So I go there and First meeting, 50 people looking at me. said, "Oh yeah, okay, I'll go up and get a desire chip." Third meeting, and Bob B. I think he was chair, and guy with about 90 days gone back out, and he they called on or something. He was ranting and ra- I mean just starting to cry and rant and rave. I'm getting up to leave. I'm done for this shit. Guy was telling my story. Same Emma. I went back up and got another desire chip, and that's the day I use for my sobriety. So
0: you had enough humility by that point to at least stand up and go get the chip. Humiliation,
1: humiliation, humiliation, humility. I no. I was just so humiliated. I still didn't have a clue what was going on until that third meeting Hmm. when I heard that guy. I mean, it was like, oh, my God.
0: So your bottom was a pit of humiliation,
1: shame, humiliation.
0: yeah. When you got that desire chip, were you at that point ready to be listening in meetings or or were you resistant to the program early on? What what were your thoughts as you were sitting in meetings?
1: I was clueless. I had no idea what was going on. I just knew that I was like him, so I probably needed to be here. And I began to listen, I mean, yeah, I began to listen. I never once once I got to that point, I said, Okay, there's something here. I don't know what it is, but there's something here and I need to listen.
0: During that period of time, you're listening to people t- sharing meetings. You're sitting there literally with close to 10 years of having not drank. Did that fact kind of inject itself into your thinking about what you were hearing people talk about a guy, let's say, who has six months and is sharing or three years and you're sitting there thinking, I got 10 years. Well, how does this apply to me?
1: No, I didn't think that way. What I thought, my biggest thinking, again, going into the shame and not being included, hearing all these guys drank and all that they drank and, you know, to the bitter end. And I'm thinking, I haven't been drunk for nine, almost 10 years. How did you get
0: through that frame of mind?
1: Oh, it took many years. Did it? First step meetings, I hated. I wasn't powerless over alcohol, according to that definition. Second half, my life, it was a mess. Yeah. But I couldn't say... I'm powerless over alcohol because when I stopped drinking, I mean, I hadn't gotten to that point where that road of no return. Right. So I'm thinking, you know, do I really belong here? Well, you know, so I hated first step meetings until probably about it's taken me, what, 27 years? Take me probably a good 20 plus years to where I finally say, hey, yeah, I'm alcoholic. I drank alcoholically for 21 years I never wanted to stop. I never wanted to change. So it took a, a long time for me. It's that shame and guilt and not measuring up my whole life that's still yeah. muddy the water.
0: So during your time in AA, obviously, I've, I've had the opportunity to be your friend for a long time and see how you interact with other people. And I've seen the service work that you've done as a member of AA. Particularly when it comes to men or women in the groups that you and I attended frequently, that something would happen and you were always the guy to be the first one to call them when they were in the hospital. You'd always be the guy to pick them up when they couldn't drive to the meeting. To me, that, that was, you know, really serious service work. I wanted to ask you about the connection between that particular service work and you getting to the point at which you finally felt really comfortable being in AA
1: probably took me 18 months. And I remember it was that Tuesday night meeting. Uh Somebody brought up the subject of belonging in AA. Mm -hmm. And they called on me and it was like, holy hell. Yeah, I belong. Hmm. I feel this is my home. So it was, yeah, it was 18 months.
0: So even though you were feeling that little bit of a disconnect because that you over the powerlessness part of the first step, you were still able to embrace the program.
1: Yeah, that I belonged. I belong. I was a drunk. It's all that comparison. I knew I belonged. Right. But as long as you didn't talk about the first step, I, you know, and when I was getting ready to do my fourth step, alcohol has been a symptom of the problem. I thought, ah, okay. It's not really alcohol. It's just you know. It's what why th- that's the solution, but here's the problem.
0: So that fourth step must have been really important yeah. when you first did that. How about when you got to the eighth and ninth step? What what was it? What was that process like for you, especially since you hadn't drank for so many years that you that you had still been impacting other people's lives. The eighth and ninth step,
1: God intervened there. My first sponsor, I. I think had the same feeling about he didn't think i was wasn't sure i was alcoholic. anyway he took me through for a while and then i finally said i've had enough of you Mm -hmm. and i went to my second one to do my fifth step and i'm getting ready to do my fifth step and all of a sudden i remembered something that i had not included in my fourth step Mm -hmm. that guy down west virginia property and casualty broker he went behind my back, took a couple of these ideas, and he was an old at in a field guy and he put the business there. Well, I couldn't go and confront him. I, you know, He comes to me later, the, the owner comes to me later and says, hey, look, I, uh, I've i got a guy that I, I, he want, I want to make an investment and, and uh, he can't take the commission. Can, it, can you take the commission and give it to him? Oh, sure. Yeah, fine. Yeah, I might have to. <laughs> well, I kept the money. You kept the money. Because he told you know he later when he got he said hey I can't transfer it oh he knew that I mean I knew that in the beginning, and that was my way of getting back. Wow. So anyway, it was eight hundred bucks back in the sometime seventy eight seventy nine. So that's you know, all of a sudden when I'm talking to my fifth step, that comes back in my mind. I went holy shit. We had a trip to Pittsburgh three or four months later. So what do I do? Last day, I rent a car, drive down to West Virginia. Well, he's retired, has cancer. Mm -hmm. Write him a letter, send him a check. Got a letter back from him. Um, God, you know,
0: God is... Yeah, you've told a lot of those God stories over the years. One of the things I I always like to ask is, can you relate to me some of the things that have happened during your period in AA that were pivotal moments or milestones for you?
1: Probably the the first one, I was five years sober and I uh, had had enough in my marriage. I said, you know, and so anyway, I uh, left her. To get out of the thing, I gave away most of what we had, mm-hmm. which wasn't a whole lot. His um, dysfunction was, you know, was so. Anyway, um, was divorced in October of 2000, and this thing called 9/11 hit. By that time, I'm mostly in the investment business, and um, and I was straight commission, mm-hmm. so nobody was buying what I was selling. I, I was living in a little eight hundred square foot loft apartment, you know, condominium. And so uh nine eleven hit and so I'm living on credit cards, you know, back then they were giving you these free cash <laughs> right. transfer you, you know, and I'm building up. All of a sudden I would begin to realize every once in a while I get a commission check, I never you know, and all of a sudden when I'm really beginning to hurt for money, credit card comes in, you know, free cash, da da. da, da. And so you know, and then I joined another firm. Things started turning around,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I got sued. Mm. By a friend of mine in the, in was in Alon nice guy. We got to be really good friends. Mm-hmm. And when I look back on it now, he had three advisors, and probably when he met with the attorney, he said, "Look, if we're going to sue one. We're going to sue them all." He gave me a little bit of money just because you know. He, he was my friend, things like that. The vast majority of the money was with was
0: two with other advisors. So anyway, he... Uh, so it was with... So this is a guy who was in Al-Anon?
1: We used to go to the Chapter 9 meeting all the time together.
0: So all these good things happening, you're getting these checks in and everything else. So that's the good thing happening. And right in the midst of that, you get sued.
1: Well, actually, by this time, I'm, I've joined another firm and business starts to pick up. And I get this letter and it has NASD or something and. SEC. And I'm thinking, I almost threw it away. Well, it was a lawsuit. Mm. It was with a company I was no longer with. And I had no errors and omissions.
0: Oh, no. So you had no insurance coverage to cover any suit lawsuit.
1: I called the company up and they say it's your deal, dude. You know, Well, about a month or so later, they called me back because they realized I had the file. I had all the information on this. They had nothing which was why it was a bogus, you know. Sure. So anyway, they said, okay, we'll, we'll represent you, but if we see where you did something wrong, we're done. Mm-hmm. I said, fine. So they answered the suit, and I was going up to man-to-man, and George M., who I was friends with, who mm-hmm. was very successful in his business, um, I talked to him about it, showed him the information. He said, Tom, you did nothing wrong here. So that made me feel a bit better. And then their attorney when he really learned out what the deal was, I'd I'd done as much as you could for this guy, sure. you know. But anyway, uh, I mean, I'd handled it very ethically. Mm-hmm. So after about every time this attorney calls me, I'm thinking, hang up, <laughs> hang up, you know. And he keeps talking. I'm thinking, cha ching, cha ching, you know, just scared to death. And so anyway, he after about a year of this, he uh, calls me up one day. He says, "You sitting down?" I said, "No, but I will." And he said, uh, "They dropped they it." They just dropped it. Yeah. He was just trying to get a settlement. And fortunately for me, the company was a lot of companies would just say, screw it. You know, we'll just let's just settle it. They didn't. And I think this attorney had something to do with it once he saw how I had handled it. So anyway, and he said, look, this didn't come from me. Please don't tell them this. Mm-hmm. But he says, you have no business having to pay all this. Mm. So anyway, my boss and I got together and sent him an email detailing why they should have a piece of it. I never heard a word from him. So
0: that was about 12 months worth of constant angst and trepidation, I
1: guess. Yeah, every time that damn phone rang an attorney, I was scared, you know, and all this kind of stuff.
0: It it just took a toll on you emotionally and monetarily during that time. must have been hard to really get your mind into your work and everything else. Well, again, I showed up at meetings
1: and I talked about
0: it. Yeah, I remember you talking about it, too.
1: And then the other thing was cancer. Yeah. Uh, the other thing was, you know... When did I, that
0: happen? What year was that?
1: Diagnosed in 2018. Like I always say, if you have your first colonoscopy at age 71, you can get cancer. Mm. Um, and so that's what happened. And But, you know, what was interesting was, you know, I hear all these people say, God, when I hear I have cancer, I get scared. I I was... I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I have no idea other than God was preparing me because i i do think he prepared me for this for all the stuff that came into my life over my life but i thought oh wow i got cancer the only thing that irritated me was the doctor didn't even do a you know he didn't even do a biopsy he came back from the colonoscopy and said you got cancer huh. and i looked at him i said wait a minute you're not going to do a biopsy? he says no i don't have to
0: it was that bad
1: huh as it turned out it yeah it was uh yeah. he said though well, his point was he said we got it pretty quick so i don't think you're going to have an issue and so they got me to a surgeon. Right away, I called up a friend of mine and she referred me to somebody and she referred to somebody else, and I got under a natural protocol. Mm-hmm. One of them was end up being THC, the marijuana. Mm. When, she, when she referred me to this person, they started talking to me about it. I said, okay, wait a minute. I said, I'm an alcoholic covered. I got 27, 26 years, 25 or whatever. I said, I got to talk to my sponsor. So I talked to my sponsor and he said, number one, did you go looking for this? I said, no. Mm -hmm. Number two, are you going to take it as prescribed? Yes. Number three, if you begin to see it's an issue, are you going to get off of it? Yes. He said, Tom, go ahead. Mm -hmm. And so I took it once a night and some other stuff that she gave me. But I also interviewed with a couple of holistic doctors. And the second doctor was one that I had used her predecessor. She says, it's funny, I we have a lab over in Greece. And she said, we have a lot of success with nine enzymes. We're all varying degrees of success. So I went on a program of three at a time for a month, next three at a time, yada, yada. And anyway, after the surgery, and a, a real God thing, I wish I had had other stuff happen before because... I went out to have that surgery done and I got out of the car and I had this feeling come over me at five thirty in the morning, I'm down there, don't do this. And I could tell it was a it was it was not my mind, it was something else saying, You don't need to do this.
0: This is the surgery to remove the tumor?
1: Yeah. Now I don't think my wife, I mean, my wife and everybody else would have just been...
0: This is your second wife you're talking about now. Yeah, which
1: we are very happily married. But I didn't have the courage to do that. Hmm. As I look back on it now, I wish I had. He told me the surgery would be four hours. It was seven because he cut an artery.
2: Hmm. Uh,
1: he told me that he would take 12 inches of my colon, took 18 inches, and that's created issues of its own. Sure. When I got to go, I got to go. It's getting a lot better now. They were able to do the resection. Now, what was really fascinating, I was, at this time, had several different prayer groups. AA, I have a group out of India, a Golden Age movement. Um, so I had my name in all these lists. Please mm-hmm. pray for me. I'm talking to this guy the next day. And I said, you know, I had a lot of people praying
2: mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, this is a surgeon. He said, uh, I felt a presence. Mm. He said, when I was doing the surgery, I felt a presence. You know. <laughs> Now, when I look back on it, I said, uh, I'm damn glad that presence was there. I mean, you cut an <laughs> artery. It was just, some of it was, uh, I had some issues yeah. with a pancreas mass they found, which really, that scared yeah, thought
0: me. thought that might be a tumor, huh?
1: Yeah, but uh, boots. I went up and told him about that. He said, don't worry about that. He says, I had one of those too. He says, you'll find out it's benign. But that complicated the surgery. So it was all kinds of a mess. And I, I spent four days in the hospital, went home. Wasn't feeling well. I had to go back in the hospital for two weeks. I got C. diff. I lost 40 pounds. I finally got home. One incident before, when I was home during those first four days, I mean, it was just, it was miserable. just. And I had a camping knife over on the other side of my bed.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I thought about it.
1: Yeah, I really did. I really, I had some thoughts.
0: What were, What were those thoughts telling you?
1: You stick one in there, you know, it was a very sharp knife. I mean, all I had to do was you'd probably hit the juggler and, you you know, and I I mean, I thought about it. I really did.
0: Because you thought you were done for at that time by the cancer?
1: Well, it was just all the pain and the misery that, you know, and I didn't even know this was before the C. diff.
0: And C. diff is some kind of infection. Yeah. And once it started. That was happening to you for two weeks before you started getting better.
1: Yeah, then I came home. You guys brought some meetings mm-hmm. to me and I uh I started to uh gain the weight back. It took a while, you know. I exercise, you know, I and uh and it's been for I just got my 3 year clear. Uh,
0: clear meaning no cancer.
1: Yeah, no cancer. Wow,
0: congratulations on that.
1: Yeah. Well and I've tried to talk to people about this, but you know, I took the enzyme, but that's not what cured me. All the books and tapes and stuff that came to me, there was I put together a protocol. In the morning, I would sit in meditation, and I would I would visualize a doctor coming into me, sitting down, and say, "Tom, your cancer's gone." Hmm. And it also said, "Okay, how does that make you feel? Oh, you're in you're in joy. Mm-hmm. Stay with that feeling. See yourself just like the Bible. Just what the Bible says. Christ had asked you know, ask, knowing you've received it." Yeah. I would do that morning. I would do that night. I would listen to music. I had music. I love music. Yeah. See, because I, I believe that cancer cannot live in an environment of gratitude, joy, tolerance, love.
2: Mm.
1: Why did I get cancer? I was one angry son of a bitch. Judgmental. All that, all that, yeah, 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 yeah. that's where cancer thrives. Yeah. I, tr- I truly believe that. Whether it's true or not, I, I, you know, it, it was for me and I'm cancer free today.
0: And you've shared that story so many times in so many different settings that I know every time I hear you share it in a meeting, it's been impactful. There are other men in those meetings who have gone through, are going through, or will go through what you've gone through that I think what you just said has really been extraordinarily impactful on people over the time that you've been saying it.
1: I've had some people say that to me. And what I found out later was mine was just under stage four.
0: Mm. So you went the holistic approach.
1: I went the holistic approach. And I, you know, I truly believe God knew what an idiot I was as far as colonoscopies, that he said, we need to get this guy some help. It's just, you know, we have no idea how, how much you have a part in healing. That was the thing i heard two common threads of survivors they believe they're going to get better they believe in the in in the protocol doesn't matter what it is whatever they they believe will make it. yeah the
0: mind is a powerful powerful tool for that isn't it yeah so you've had this process of meditating and doing a lot of mindfulness for many many years the cool thing is that you have been sharing about this since the practical experiences that you had using it right And so here you are after the fact, and three years later, you're cancer-free. You continue to share about this in meetings. I've seen other men walk up to you after meetings where you've shared that, and I know that they are inquiring about what you did, how it happened, and it's been beautiful. And to me, the kind of service work that you do with that is just just astounding. And when Boots was going through what he was going through, he was able to be helpful to you. And then you in turn were able to be helpful to all these other people. The cool thing about AA, Tom, and to me, it gives us a forum in which we can express gratitude that then helps other people. Where we can express that connection with a power greater than ourselves, other people around us can see it working. So maybe it possibly can work for them.
1: First, thank you very much for your time. Con- it means a lot coming from it really does. But you're right. I mean, we talk about life. We get real. I always use the story of the guy that in the meeting early on that came uh, as a visitor, first time visitor, and they called on him and he says, Yeah, I just got out of the prison for vehicular homicide. I remember that guy. There's no place. Where-, where else do you say something like that? And I always like to say, Try that <laughs> in a men's Bible study and see what
0: happens. Men have tried, and it hasn't worked very well, has it? No,
1: it doesn't work, and that's nothing against organized religion. They have their part, but we've been to hell. We don't want to go back, and that's what this, the power of the fellowship, just because of exactly that, there's nothing off limits.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're right, and I've noticed that for years and years, and I still see it in every meeting. There's always some little tidbit, sometimes much bigger bits involved in those types of stories that I know affect people in the room. You've been a great example of, you know, sharing the message with other people in a way that does positively affect their lives. And I feel really blessed to have been going through the journey with you. And we continue the journey, which is very, very cool. And the thing I'm most excited about in you doing this AA recovery, interviews podcast, is that there will be people who hear this who you and I will never, ever see, will never even know they've heard it, won't know who they are. And of course, I keep things pretty anonymous, so they won't necessarily know who you are. But just the story, the universality of it, the hopefulness of it. I think is gonna save some lives. You've been a great friend, and I wanna really thank you for doing this, Tom. I love you, and you're just a big factor in my sobriety to this day, and I look forward to many more years with you.
1: Well, Howard, I tell you, everything you said, I gotta say right back to you, because as I say, you've been there, and the service you're doing here, that's the power, because now we have the opportunity, we pass it on.
0: We do, and it makes a big impact on other people. Again, many thanks for doing this, Tom. And, and
1: Well, bless your heart for what you do, Howard. I really do. I love you. You're beautiful. And I appreciate the opportunity to do this. It's a way to, to pass on what we came, came to, came to believe. Yeah,
0: and here we are. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Howard. Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Tom W., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? And please leave a rating or review for the show wherever you get your podcast app. That'll help others find us. As the number of worldwide listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more and more people. Of course, you can listen to all of my interviews by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, and other podcast providers. Or simply tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.